Welcome to the Self-Made Expert Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Morgan, and I love speaking with people who are cultivating economically valuable expertise outside the world of academia and the licensed professions. Some of these conversations end up on this podcast. You can learn more about my work helping indie consultants build an expertise moat at philipmorganconsulting.com. David, welcome back to part two of this humongous interview. So you invited me back, huh? Are you really recording this or is this like taking pictures without any film in the camera? We took a bathroom break and I only had about two minutes to think about it, but it still <laughs> seems like a good idea. <laughs> I might change my mind midway yeah, through. Right. <laughs> so you're working on a book, a new book, your fifth book, sixth book? Sixth book. Well, yeah, uh, probably shouldn't count that first one. So yeah, let's say fifth. Okay. Fifth real book with your voice, your ideas in it. What's the book? Well, the thing that changes the most about my books is the title. <laughs> you know? So uh, provisionally, it's called The Application of Expertise, playing off of the, I want it to be kind of a series. It's probably going to be the same size. And instead of red, orange, it's going to be a different color. But so instead of the business of expertise, it'll be called the application of expertise. And then there'll be a subtitle to it. And of course, I've got, I think, 17 versions of it. <laughs> <laughs> but something about how indie advisors do consulting. And it can't be the right one because it's not exciting. And actually, the whole title is lame. I keep getting people that they're telling me that I need to title my books in a more provocative way. And I, I agree with them, but I just can't seem to do it. So anyway, it's about the application of expertise, how independent consultants actually do their trade craft. Trade craft is going to be in it somehow. Trade craft, like how spies do their work, how they do the dead drops, all that stuff. Yes. I'm imagining already a trilogy here. The third book being the pitfalls of expertise. How to fail profoundly as an expert or something. Yeah. Right. While still succeeding. <laughs> There's got to be a little hook in the title. Right. So kind of what do you think would be a good starting point? Maybe walk through the key ideas of the book. Yeah, I could start by telling you what I'm so uncomfortable about with the book. And it wouldn't surprise me if if this thing takes a completely big turn right in the middle of writing it, because I've done most of the research. I'm actually writing it now. I think I've got 30% of it done. I was listening to somebody the other day who said that unless you change the direction of a book during the writing, it's not a good book. So I'm taking that to heart. What do you think they meant when they said that? Like you're not doing the thinking deeply enough or? Yeah, exactly. Right. If you go to write a book knowing everything that you think you need to know, then it's probably not going to be a good book. The writing of it needs to be an exploration. So what I'm really nervous about in the book is that it's going to come across as being manipulative. So there are the tradecraft, the secrets are going to, some of my clients are going to read this and they are going to recognize some of the techniques that I've used, and I'm afraid that they're going to feel manipulated. So that's just my nervousness about it, because it's really, it's not about how do you learn, how do you develop IP, any of that. It's exclusively about how do you get people to listen to you? How do you make an impact on people's business lives? And so that's what I'm nervous about. And it works through... I tend to write this way. It's very outlined, 
listicle kind of thing, starting from beginning to end. So mm. how do you limit how much extra work you don't want to do? How do you steer a conversation? How available do you need to be? So it's real down in the weeds, nitty gritty. Nobody is going to be interested in this book who isn't in the nuts and bolts of consulting. People who are really consulting are going to immediately see themselves in this thing. So that's kind of what it's about and also what I'm nervous about. That's really interesting. Let's not try to divorce the book from your own career. When we look at people who have been doing a thing for a long time and they're good at it, it just seems so natural, right? You see somebody up on stage who's a musician and you're just amazed at how effortless they make it look. And so it's hard to distinguish what was talent for them and what was something they intentionally practiced over and over again to cultivate. Where's that line for you? Because, you know, when I see you interacting with people or presenting at one of your seminars, it all seems like this natural, cohesive thing where you just popped out of your mother's womb giving business advice, right? <laughs> That's what it looks like. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that you've paid particular attention to elements of how that's done and perhaps had to cultivate it, like steering a conversation or creating good boundaries around your time. Yeah. And the actually idea for this book came from a service offering. I kept getting people who didn't want to work with me in the way I had scripted. They didn't want help with their firm. They were a principal of a firm. They wanted to do what I did, and they wanted help migrating into that space. And my first reaction was always, well, shoot, I don't want to create a competitor. And then I would get over that within five seconds and say, here's an opportunity to not only expand what I do, but also to think more carefully about what I do and think about it from a system standpoint. Like, what do I do poorly what do I do well? And there are, I mean, I can give you all kinds of things that I do very poorly and things I do well. What, how do I think about that stuff? And then it also, part B of that was hearing through the grapevine that somebody newer to the space would like to develop that kind of a practice. And so I thought, oh, well, maybe there's a world for that. And then part C was this secret agenda I have had for years now. And Blair and I talked about it in the podcast that's going live next week, I guess. And that's that I've had this secret agenda to turn all of my clients into consultants. I've seen your tagline for years. You've said this, something similar about turning developers into advisors. Is that what you say? Or Yeah, close coders to consultants. Yeah. Coders, yeah, exactly. And I'm really with you on that point. I just think it's really smart of you to do that. And I haven't said it like that, but I've, I've been thinking about that, not quite as publicly as you are, but I really think you're onto something. Because as the implementation sort of falls away, so what is it about the typical marketing firm or digital firm that I work with that's truly consultative? Whatever that is, then all of a sudden, there's a lot more to talk about because I'm living the good and the bad parts of this, and there's stuff we can talk about if they're interested in becoming more of an advisor kind of firm. Is there a sort of conceptual framework behind the advice in the book? Or is it more like of a toolkit that's useful individually and as a whole thing? I wish it had uh, more of a framework like you suggest there in that question. I really wish it did. 
It does not, though. It's more of a toolkit, although it's organized kind of like a framework, even though it's not a framework. Maybe after the book is out for three years, I'll discover what that framework should have been. The way I understand your question is, do you have a particular theory of change, David? And are you pulling that apart into all of its little components? And the truth is, I don't. Like my podcast partner, if you were to ask him that question, he would answer it by saying, Prochaska is probably the theory of change that he's most attached to. I don't have an answer for that question. So in my case, it's really more of a toolbox. So I just jotted down all the things I could think of. And then for the next three years after doing that, I started to keep a specific notebook, same color, same size, same pen that I would have in every engagement. And every time I realized something about what I'd done well or done wrong, I would write it down and then I would somehow, I'd figure out a way to plug that into the outline. So that's how it developed. Let's say the obvious here, there may be no theory of change that, first of all, there just may not be a good one, or there may be one that's really limited and not uh, very helpful in the diversity of situations that a consultant might face. So that could be the reason, like you kind of framed it as like this unfortunate thing, but Maybe there just is no good theory of change that works in the kind of situations you've seen. It could be. That would be ascribing a greater generosity to me than is probably due. It's probably more, I'm just a little arrogant, honestly, and I don't want to use somebody else's theory of change. So, (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. I'm in that camp too. I like to invent my own. Yeah, exactly. Like, why would I use somebody else's? If you go to Google and you type in, theory of change, and then you click the tab to images rather than text. Oh my goodness, there are hundreds, thousands of graphics that basically illustrate theories of change. I find it really fascinating to read through. I just haven't found one yet that I just totally get my arms around. Yeah, I really feel like the Google image search tab is this sort of underrated aspect of, or it's just a different lens to look at things through. Do you ever use the scholar.google.com? When it comes up in the search results, I probably also underuse that as a specific resource. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. So, okay, what's in the toolkit or the sort of loose framework that you're putting together? So examples, I'm not looking at the outline right now, but... These will be the good ones because they're the ones you remember. (laughs) Yeah. People are usually pretty good at the craft. They just don't know. I'm sorry, they're not so much good at the craft. They're good at knowing the concepts. What they're not good at is the craft. They're not good at how do you transfer those things in a way that maximizes your impact on the situation. And then the other half of that coin is doesn't flip and wear you out so that you just move on to something else. So how do you avoid any unnecessary phone calls? How do you make sure that a meeting is on track? How do you handle a violent disagreement in a meeting, and I mean even physically violent, usually it's not physically violent, but how should you expect your clients to think and feel about you charted over time? How do they feel about you before they hire you, right after, three years later, 10 years later? So just so that you're not surprised by that and don't feel like maybe you're off track, what are the normal ways to expect it? How many things should you put in writing? What are the three or four most important things typically, or how many should be the most important things? So it just, there's 300 of those kind of tips. I envision, I'm actually thinking about 
producing the books, that it has wide margins in it. I'm just envisioning the person who finds the book valuable to be scribbling all over it and reading it five or six times. There aren't any major, major things in the book, I think. It's more just, oh, shoot, yeah, I've seen that. That makes sense. So I want them to start to see themselves in here, and that'll give them the confidence to see themselves in the other 70% of the book where they haven't experienced that in consulting yet. That's really interesting. You know, I came of age in computers and technology when pretty much every piece of software had with it sold with it, like a three-ring binder, right? Yeah, right. And I'm just seeing that, but with the kind of stuff that you just talked about in it. And for some people, I think that's a terrifying vision. For me, it's actually comforting. Mm. <laughs> yeah, or nowadays, it's not good software if it requires any context-sensitive help, What how our world has changed, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think I've heard you say, David, that in maybe two or three instances, the best advice you could give a client was that they shut down their operation. Let's please do not, you know, I know that you wouldn't, but not any specifics here. But how would what you're writing about show up in that kind of situation? I'm picking intentionally a very difficult situation that a consultant might face delivering what's going to be, I think, devastating advice for their client. Yeah, such an interesting question. The way I would interpret that is... I would say, what's the primary message of encountering a situation like that? And to me, the primary message is that you must set the agenda. So yeah, they are hiring you, a client is hiring you to answer some specific questions, but you are duty-bound to answer different ones if there's a bigger calling that you see yourself employing here. So how should we fix this business is the question they might ask. The bigger question is, should you be in business at all? And the best advisors don't just answer the questions. The best advisors suggest completely different questions that they can then in turn usually answer. Not always, but they can usually answer. So that's one. That's how I would interpret that as it applies to the book. How do you ask bigger questions that the client's not even asking? And another one would be, how do you deliver very difficult information and the client that's listening to this not feel personally attacked? How do you deliver information so that they still feel understood and supported? Can you send somebody to hell and help them enjoy the trip because they still believe that you are on their team? And that is a really critical role of consulting. You, there are a lot of consultants that have the right answers. They just don't know how to deliver them well. Those are the kinds of things I want to talk about. Okay. Let me push you a little further on that. You've looked at my business and you're like, oh, Philip, you should be, you should have a job. You should not be working for yourself. <laughs> how do you deliver that advice to me? We're, we're doing a little role playing here. And I'm trying to not getting free, hopefully not getting free consulting. Because yeah. <laughs> I hope that's <laughs> yeah. not the message you would have for me. That's the whole ruse of this recording, right? You're just wondering whether you should close down. There we yeah. go. <laughs> you didn't want to pay me to give you advice. Yeah. Well, I would say, first, we have to see if there is a problem that we both agree on. There almost always will be because nobody opens their business up to an advisor unless there's something that's stumping them. They've tried. They've eaten. They pulled all the low-hanging low fruit off the tree, and it's just the stuff they can't reach with a ladder. They hire somebody else to reach it for them. And then the second stage would be to say, okay, 
I may not know the answer to this question that this problem, this common problem establishes. I may not know the answer to this as the advisor, but can we agree that you don't know the answer? And that one, obviously, it can't be <laughs> said exactly like that. It has to be a lot more gentle, but because you can't really move forward unless they admit that they must be open to something that's different than what they have been thinking about. So that would be that next step. And then I think you have to draw a really intellectually honest comparison for them and say, all right, let's think about this. What you love about your job right now is freedom. You don't have a boss. Now, what you're paying to not have a boss is this. And that gap is what is, in some cases, it's it's maybe just emotional, like there's more up and down in your life than you want, or maybe you don't have the right health insurance, or more likely it's you're leaving $60,000 on the table. If you went and got a job working for somebody else right now, you'd make 60000 more. So essentially you're paying $60,000 a year to not have a boss. And you're laughing and, and they start to see the reality slightly differently, but you're you're being intellectually honest. You're saying like there's there are a lot of things about your life right now that are really good. These are the things that are really bad. And you just help to paint those choices. You cannot force people. You just have to lead them to it and recognize all the time that all of us as humans are not ready for change except at very key moments in our lives. And it's not a contest between you and the client. You're simply there in the interest of gentle truth. And anyway, that's how I would generally think about it. Well, we're going to wrap this up because uh, I need to go shut my business down. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. So there seems to be this sort of quality of, I'm kind of reminded of some of the better books on negotiation I've read, which seem to be coming from the same core sort of principle of people will do what they see in their best interest. And sometimes you have to kind of build a vision for that thing. And it's an incremental process. It's not like a shock and awe thing. It is it's a conversation that goes someplace and maybe there's an agenda behind it or a, or a goal, but it, it's a lot more like a conversation than it is walking in and slamming down a big stack of paper on somebody's desk. Mm -hmm. Is that how you see it? I do. Yeah. In fact, I think that question just prompted a new chapter in the book. Like, what is it that prompts people to listen? Yeah, I do. I do think that's really interesting the way you thought about that. and. There's, my mind is just racing because of all the things that, all the ways you might answer that. Just being a really good observer and faithfully repeating what you see in their business so that it resonates so clearly with them. It's like, this guy, he's obviously, he's not mailing it in. He's read everything I sent and he's read between the lines and he's made observations and it's like all of a sudden. So they listen, they start listening really carefully, I think. They also, they don't want to work with losers. They want to work with people that have been successful enough that they're worth listening to. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. There's just so many ways to answer this. It's really interesting. Why do people listen? I do think what it comes down to more than anything, though, is that there has to be a ring of truth around you understanding them. And that's why you just have to be so self-aware. And I think the the longer you do something like this, the better hopefully you'll get because you don't let yourself get in the way. So being self-aware and saying, like, for instance, okay, I'm, I'm irritated right now. Why am I irritated? Well, I'm irritated because this client 
They used this tone of voice with me just now in a phone call. Huh. Now, let me think more deeply about that. I wonder if my clients experience the same thing. And then you start listening to their conversations differently. You start listening to yourself differently about the tone of voice you're using. There's just so much good consulting is so much about self-awareness and helping people. That's what the world is missing more than anything from a community standpoint, is people feeling like they belong anywhere, that they are understood. And that's what a consultant can do and do it so incredibly well is help people. It's like, wow, somebody, somebody finally understands my world. That's what really good consulting is. One of the things that's been so interesting to me is getting to see my clients' proposals as I'm sure you know, one of the standard ways that that's approached is we'll begin the proposal with some sort of narrative that demonstrates that we get you. Right. And we understand the situation and the problem. And in written form, that can be so clunky. It can come across so sort of just robotic. Yeah, it's like a legal document that starts with 12 whereas. Right. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> I think you're saying there's so much value to maybe you just sort of ham-fistedly stumble your way into some kind of competence, but just of being able to, I think in certain communication theory, it might be thought of as mirroring or just demonstrating that you understand what the other person is thinking and feeling and experiencing. And it sounds like that's a big part of what's the message of this book is Tools for doing that, for, I mean, tools for better communication, but specifically for, I guess we could think of it as empathy as well. Is that a part of what you're saying? It is, yeah. Yeah. A commercial empathy, maybe, is a phrase we should invent here. But absolutely, yeah. So here's an example. So if we believe that what you just said is a core of good consulting, then you might ask, okay, how do we do that? Then the book is going to say, Ah, I've got the answer for you. It's to do employee surveys because employees are forever all around the world right at this moment telling business owners what to do and the business owners are ignoring them. And all you got to do to look intelligent is tell them what the employees have been saying. And bam, they believe, and it's true, that you understand their situation. So a really simple tip like that that's the best way to earn credibility is to do a survey if it's the right survey of employees. Or it could be of clients, right? But it's just a simple tool to immediately understand their world. Circling back just a little bit, what makes a consultant look like a loser? One who makes vapid promises, one who wants it too badly, one who is constantly giving advice and not following it himself or herself. How, how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's move on. Yeah, I okay. mean, there, there's a lot there, but I was curious to hear your perspective on that. There's, I believe, this tension between giving advice and that advice being acted upon in an effective way. Do you speak to that in the book? Or if not, that's fine. But do you see that tension as well? So how would that tension show up where you're giving advice and they're not taking it and you feel what at that point? I think there's two things. There's that. Okay, so the advice is not acted on at all. The other is the advice challenges a client in a way that they cannot take action on without additional support. 
And so now you have this wonderful analogy in your book, The Business of Expertise, of a place with two rooms. One room is the advice room or the strategy room. The other is the implementation room where that strategy is turned into something. It's turned into action or tangible assets or something. And I see a situation sometimes where the strategy is good, but without a certain form of support, it cannot be implemented effectively. That's another aspect of this tension. So two things, just to recap, the advice is essentially ignored, or the advice is good, but it's beyond the capabilities of the client to act on it independently on their own. Do you see that tension? Yes. And I still struggle with it a lot. I don't know how many years, but probably at least 10. I was a pretty bad consultant in relation to what you just said. So I would say, these are all the things you need to do. And I didn't prioritize them enough. There were too many of them. And then as a way to get out of any sort of personal responsibility, if they didn't do everything, then I just kind of wrote them off in my head, which is just not fair at all. So to be a better advisor, I'm still on this path of making recommendations, way fewer recommendations, trying to tailor them to what really makes sense for them, and then also still being their champion, even if they decide to only implement a third of those. And I'm getting better at that. The biggest struggle for me is that I'm not a coach in any way. And no matter how many times I've tried to be one, I'm such an abject failure at being a coach that I feel like my business would be so much more successful if I were a coach, but I simply do not have that capability. But I'm also tired of disappointing people about that. So I probably talk about it too much with them just so that to set their expectations. But that tension is is really is real. But I think we need to be careful about it because consulting, it's easy to write off consulting if it doesn't change people's lives. But I think that's unfair because the person who needs to quit smoking, it's not an issue of knowledge. They have been told that for many, many years, thousands of times, and they've seen if they live in the UK, they see pictures of people with mouth cancer every time they buy a pack of cigarettes. It's just some people have gently said the right things at the right time, and it took hold at that moment. There's no reason to believe that you as a consultant are in the right cycle for somebody. You may just be the seed planter, or you may be the person who who harvests the crop, taking full credit for it when it's actually somebody seven years ago who planted the seed. So it's too easy to write off consulting when it doesn't make a difference, but that's not a complete excuse. It really should make a difference. I think what we want to do is look at the lifetime impact of a consultant's work and not any individual case. I'm frequently surprised when people come back to me that I had written off and said, either I gave bad advice or they weren't a good client or whatever, but this was not a good engagement. And then years later, they'll go on and on about how it changed their lives. And I just like, wow, that's really good, but it's surprising too. Yeah. More and more, I'm starting to talk about what I call the fourth dimension. Not that I made that up, but the role that time plays in so many things, change or being able to change your perspective on something or business advice. I feel like there's this huge importance to synchronizing the advice with the place a client is in what is ultimately, a, hopefully, a maturity, a sort of upward progression, but at least a journey. 
at least acknowledging that, well, this client is here in this journey. This other client is much further along on the same journey. They don't get the same advice. Right, exactly. Do you get prospective clients in the early conversations who ask you how many of your clients take your advice or how many of your clients are successful because they've worked with you? Do you get that question like I do? Not enough. And there's two answers, right? There's like, well, I don't know because I can't transcend the limits of time and I can't tell you how many people will have what appears to be an unsuccessful experience now that is a seed or is a fertilizer on some other seed. And then there's the other answer is, well, less than 50% get some kind of immediate big bang benefit. Yeah, I say 40. So you're better than I am, apparently. I say 40%. Well, I haven't measured it, David. <laughs> and maybe I'm being kind to myself. The real test is later, right? It's years later. Yeah. See. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but that's a much harder thing to measure. And that other number is sort of shockingly low. But I mean, do doctors report on the efficacy of their, like, let's think about surgeons, right? Like how many, I don't know, there's no need to get specific about that. I think the numbers would be similar. Yeah. When you look at reviews online of like pain clinics, usually the ones that give a one out of five stars are the ones that didn't renew their prescription. It's like, yeah, <laughs> it's not really fair. Yeah. So as you're assembling this toolkit in this book, which is temporarily titled The Application of Expertise, if we took the cover off the book, if we took away everything that seemed to specifically point to consulting or your life or your career, what would we think of the content? Would we think this is really a book about like soft skills? Would we think this is really a book about relationship skills? Do you see what I'm getting at? I think we would look at it as, yeah, that's probably fair. Something about impacting people through significant conversations, maybe that would be the theme. So yeah, so you could see somebody who's maybe a therapist, and goodness knows I'm not, but somebody who's a therapist who might take this book and they might even get some significant benefit from it, and it might become the kernel of a book that they write because it just spurs them to think about how to do this. I want it to be sort of a handbook that when somebody's in grad school and they go for their first consulting job, and this would not be helpful in that setting but then they decide to branch out on their own. Somebody says, here, I want you to take this book. I want you to read it. And it becomes dog-eared. And then they recommend it to somebody before they start their independent consulting practice. Because this, this stuff I'm talking about in here does not apply if you work at Boston Consulting Group. It's, it's a different world. Right. But it has this potential weird applicability to fields completely unrelated to the sort of indie management consultant. Does that tempt you to go horizontal with the book's positioning? Well, yes. And in fact, the book is horizontal. I'm not writing it for my market. Okay. Yeah. It's absolutely not written for my market. I imagine a lot of my market will buy it just because we know each other. But yeah, it's written for independent consultants. So Business of Expertise was an attempt to take my market a little bit horizontal. And it's been successful to some degree, probably 30%. And this, I'd like it to be 70 or 80% horizontal. This is not about the book at all. This is so selfish of me, but, or maybe our listeners will enjoy this. What challenges have you had to address as you move 
a bit more horizontal in your own positioning. And if folks don't know those terms, they should just read the business of expertise and they'll get up to speed pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, uh, part of that challenge is just getting kicked out of the airplane. You're at a certain altitude and you're having to establish credibility all over again. And the other is this kind of wild excitement, wondering if what you think applies to, say, accountants or engineers or lawyers, whether it really does. And this terrifying, oh, my goodness, I'm about to find out in a few minutes and I have no idea which way this is going to go. And it could be really good or it could be really bad. There's kind of that excitement. There's also a sense of, of being a hypocrite because I talk so much about the tightness of positioning, but I want my writing career to be more horizontal than my advising career. And so just wondering if I'm going to get nailed to a cross on that issue. So yeah, mixed thinking about all of it. Okay. Last few questions about the book. You said you're about 30% done with the writing. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask myself this question so that I can prove that I'm not a jerk. Philip, how successful are you with your project planning for your own writing project? <laughs> Thanks for asking. I'm really terrible at it. <laughs> yeah. I miss my estimates and deadlines grossly. I, I'm much more like the healthcare.gov site in terms of the, the project management success of that than anything else. David, how, when should we expect this book? What does your project plan for it look like? I'd like most of it to be written by the end of... 2019. And I blew some, I didn't promote the business of expertise as well as I could have. I released three different versions of it and didn't do that contemporaneously. So I want to release the audiobook and the Kindle and the printed version all at once. So I'm not going to dribble it out there. So I'm guessing it'll probably be in the spring of 2020. All three versions will be released at the same time. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm rooting for you, man. I know it's quite a journey to get from start to finish on something like this. I feel like a writing addict. If I, as far as I know, I haven't been addicted to any drug, maybe coffee. I don't know. So I imagine what it feels like, but I get itchy and grouchy when I don't write. So this is part of what I do to survive. I, in some ways, it doesn't even matter what happens with it. I just have to do it. So this is Every book has to be a little shorter and a little better and a little bit sooner than the last one. That's kind of the mantra for me. Okay. Well, you do it enough and you'll be doing a book a month. <laughs> You're not suffering the writing DTs right now. So good luck keeping that up. Thank the, you. The detox symptoms of being away from writing for too long. <laughs> David, thank you for giving this early peek at what's going on with this book. It's just a wonderful part two to our earlier conversation, because the expertise is not enough, right? It has to be applied in a way that matters. Yeah. And just having conversations like this, and I just found myself, ah, I'm getting more clarity about the book. It's just, it's so much fun. It's so much fun to get clarity. And these questions have prompted more clarity for me. So yeah, it's been great. Thank you for having me.